June is always a busy time for New York City, with two major events taking place. One, of course, is the month-long Gay Pride celebration, and the other is the biggest day of the Broadway season, the Tony Awards. And today's guest ticks off both of those boxes. Jerry Mitchell is a prolific Broadway director and choreographer, as well as a gay advocate with shows like Broadway Bears and Kinky Boots, just to name a few. He is also an eight-time Tony nominee, but he is quick to point out that he's lost out on the award six times. In our conversation, he discusses his prolific career full of fascinating anecdotes and shares the importance of knowing our worth as artists, loving what we do on and off stage, and the importance of saying yes. You're going to learn from the experience and it's going to increase your worth. Even if the experience isn't everything you thought it was going to be, it will only help guide you in the direction in which you want to go and you deserve to go. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, a recently award-winning theater podcast featuring conversations with fellow artists, all about the challenges and hurdles we face in this business. A big thank you to the many compliments and comments I got on social media with a congratulations for the Communicator Award of Distinction that this podcast received last month. You can find out more about that award and this podcast by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Jerry, to the podcast. This is a thrill to have you on. I'm so glad we get to talk today. My pleasure. I'm very excited to be here. Now, you and I met for the first time when I was doing Kinky Boots at Muni. At that the was Muni, when, yeah. Yes, yeah. You, you have a, a strong connection to that theater. Yes, the Muni is actually where I got my equity card. I was working, uh, I was going to college at Webster College, now Webster University. I was in the conservatory program. And um, I... Um, went to auditions for the Muni Opera for the summer after my freshman year, like everyone in the conservatory did. And I was lucky enough to get cast in My Fair Lady and Desert Song. And they would cast two companies and each company did two musicals and you would perform at the Muni and then you'd take it to uh, St. Louis to the Starlight. And then you'd come back to the Muni and rehearse the new musical and you'd perform it at the Muni and you'd take it to the Starlight. So it was really like seven or eight weeks of work on a summer contract. And I got my equity card doing the Muni. And then I went back for my sophomore year and I got a principal role in the Dr. Pepper commercial shot under the arch with David Knott. And so I go back to Webster often and teach there. And uh, Lara Teeter, who I worked with on Broadway, uh, who is the lead in On Your Toes, he is now the head of the musical theater department there. So I stay in touch with him and go back quite often. How wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I've been to St. Louis a, a few times through national tours, but also performing at the Muni a couple of times. And getting to do Kinky Boots, you, you obviously came to, to see the show. Obviously, you've done this a lot now, but is it interesting to see a version of a show that you weren't a part of to see other people's version of it? You know, <laughs> the first show that that really happened with for me was Legally Blonde as a director and choreographer and seeing all the community theater productions. And I actually went back to Webster to see their production, the college, their production of Legally Blonde. When a show is successful enough that it has a life beyond its Broadway inception and you've influenced those people and encouraged them to be creative on their own, I sort of applaud that and welcome it. I'm, I mean, that's how we all learn and grow. You know, we all want to be on, well, at least I wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted to emulate those that I looked up to and I wanted to do their version of their shows. But it also allowed me to understand their work and then start to create my own. So I find it a real um, lovely thing to see. Yeah. For example, I did the Adams Family National Tour. So then I got to see a local production of it that a high school was doing. And so, yeah, it's really interesting to see the big production and then what these smaller theaters can do with it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the stories that you wanted to share today. What I liked about your stories is that they're very short, concise. And the first one, all you said was, God, I didn't get it. So did you have something specific in mind when you said that? I think, first of all, 
when anyone has a, has any modicum of success in this business, everyone just thinks you're successful, that you didn't actually have failure or have things you wanted that you didn't get. And that happened to me throughout my entire career. I have millions of stories, but I, I left the business when I was 23 as a dancer. I decided I had choreographed all through high school, all through college. And I was assisting and working with choreographers that I was doing Broadway shows and television shows with. Whenever they needed help, I raised my hand, I would jump in. And uh, I realized there was a place for me as a choreographer if I focused on that. So I stopped performing to focus on doing choreography. And uh, Jerry Zachs was looking for a choreographer for the revival of Guys and Dolls, the one with Faith Prince and Nathan Lane. And I was one of the young people in the business who was working as choreographer. I was actually in the Will Rogers Follies at this point. I had gone back to dancing. I had left during On Your Toes. And for six years, I worked as an associate assistant. And I'd done some little things on and off Broadway. Jeffrey, Lips Together, Teeth Apart, Terrence McNally's play. And so they were looking for a choreographer. And I got a call to put together two numbers to present to Jerry Zachs. And they would give me a little bit of money to do that, the, the production company. I was one of several. And I got the entire company of the Will Rogers Follies. Like I cast them all as, you know, Adelaide and the hot box girls and the guys. <laughs> and so I did, I did, of course, Take Back Your Mink and the Crapshooters Ballet. God bless him. James Wright was my musical director. And we performed them at New 42 in a room. Jerry Zachs came in. He watched the numbers. He didn't really say much to me. We talked for a couple seconds. He left the room. And I thought I did a spectacular job. I was going to get it. Of course, I didn't get it. And my heart was broken. And Chris Chadman, God bless him, got it, who was spectacular. So, and then, of course, down the road, what happens? Jerry Zachs hires me to be the choreographer for La Casha Full with him, the revival. And I win my first Tony Award. Right. So, so things do it work all out. sort of worked out, but my heart was broken because I thought I was going to make my Broadway debut as the choreographer of the revival of Guys and Dolls. Yeah. It's interesting. With Faith Prince, I did First Wives Club several years ago, and that was going to be my Broadway debut. But then the the show kind of fell apart after Chicago. So I, I know what it's like to know you're on a path, you're going there, and then oh yeah, you turn. And it's like, wait, wait. I had really focused on choreography, like I said. But the first real splash for me, I was working with Jeff Calhoun. I was the associate on Greeks. And then I did Busker Alley with him. And then I went back into the Will Rogers Follies for him as a dancer because he asked me to do the idea of the dawn. And I was in incredible shape and it was going to be this dance and the dancer was going to be practically naked. And during that process of performing, I got a call from Eric Shepard at um, ICM who was kind of freelancing with me as a choreographer. And he said, there's a movie that's shooting in Manhattan and they need a choreographer. There happened to be a shooting a scene this evening on 7th Avenue. After your show at 11 o'clock at night, it's a night shoot, will you go over and meet the director and producer? They want to talk to you about this scene. So I finished my show, I got dressed, I ran over to 757th Avenue and I walk in and there's a red Ferrari parked in the middle of a, of a building lobby. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And I go behind the cameras and the screens and I meet the director and I meet the producer and they give me a CD or a tape and they play this song for me and they go, we're trying to teach the star of the film to dance to this. What would you do? And I danced around for them and they invited me to come to a dance class the next day to meet the star and see the dance. So I go to the dance class and it's Al Pacino. And he's taking an authentic tango class in New York City. And I'm going, well, he's taking authentic tango, but he's not being choreographed so he can repeat steps so you can film him doing a dance in the film. You need to teach him a tango that he can do 10 times in a row without thinking. And 
acting like he's blind. So I said, there's a, there's a process of choreographing, right? It's not just dance around the room. So Al Pacino started working with him that day. And within half the day, I taught him the tango that is now in the film Scent of a Woman with Paul Pellicoro, who was teaching him authentic tango. And um, I ended up choreographing that film. And from that moment on, I got asked to do every film where a star was doing a dance sequence. In and out, meet Joe Black, the mirror has two faces, uh, the object of my affection. I mean, I just went, I, for like this whole period of the next three or four years, I was doing film after film after film after film, still dreaming of being a Broadway choreographer. I had not had my Broadway show yet. And that's where my focus was, but I was doing this during the day to make money. It was, it was wild. I bet. So it's interesting that at such a young age as a dancer, that you had these aspirations already to be a choreographer, because I, I would think most dancers, they kind of live out their life as that dancer, then maybe mid thirties or, or thereabouts, then they transition to choreography. What was it about being a choreographer that you wanted to do so early? All the way back to Papa, right? I first got bitten by the bug with the show, The Music Man. I was in the boys band. And my next door neighbor, she was in the show and they needed boys. She took me to the, the village playhouse and I joined the show and th that's the end of it. So there was a teacher there, uh, a, a, a choreographer there, Cindy Meek, my first dance teacher in Papa, Michigan. And she had a school in the town above the, above the drugstore. And um, I went to her class when I was 15. She kept inviting I was 10 when I did the village players. Five years later, I finally stepped into the class. I was afraid to go because I was gay. It was all girls. And I thought somebody's going to find out. This is 1975, you know, but eventually I had the courage to walk in and just dance. And um, immediately she gave me a job on Saturdays and Sundays, teaching dance to the younger kids. Cause I already knew how to tap dance from all the shows I'd been in at the village playhouse. So I was choreographing. From the very beginning, I was choreographing routines for all these kids. That went into me choreographing at the Village Playhouse. That went into me choreographing at my high school. That went into me choreographing at college. That went into me choreographing and directing at the Village Playhouse at Hope Summer Repertory Theater in Holland, Michigan. As soon as I got to New York, I got my first contract. And I had choreographed at Hope Summer Repertory Theater as well as being a performer in their summer programs. And I was asked to do my production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat now as an equity production at the Chan Anson Dinner Theater. And I needed two weeks. I had two weeks to choreograph the show, but I only had a one week vacation when I was in a Broadway show. I was in On Your Toes. I went to the stage manager and said, can I get a second week so I can do this? And then I'll come right back. And he said, you'll have to ask the producer. There was a producer, his name was Alfred Deliagra. You can look him up. He was a famous, famous Broadway producer. And I said, Mr. Deliagra, I asked if I could speak to him. He was coming to the theater. He said, I'll meet you before the show and we can talk. And I'm in my clothes, makeup on, costume, ready to go on stage. He walks in the stage door. He comes in. I go, Mr. Deliagra. And we sit down backstage on the bench right behind the show curtain. I'll never forget it. And I tell him my story. I need two weeks. And what I want to do. And he said to me, Jerry, I believe you're going to be a choreographer. So I'm going to give you that week. If you promise me that you will do the show for an additional six months. At that point, you could get one week off every six months in the equity contract. So you had to do another six months for that week. And I shook his hand and I told the stage manager what he said. I got the second week and I stayed in the show for another two years. Hmm. I honored my commitment wow. to a handshake. Yeah. Cut to, cut to my second or third show, The Full Monty. My parents had come to see the show. They came to all the openings. And of course, the show's over and I go out into the orchestra to find my parents and take them to the party. And my dad is with this rather elderly woman, beautifully dressed, very elegant. She's at the opening night. And my dad always made friends with everybody who was in, <laughs> anybody who was in, you know, within six feet of him. That's my son's, my son's the choreographer, you know, that kind of guy. So um, I'm getting teary-eyed thinking of this. And so he says, Jerry, I want to meet, introduce you to this beautiful woman. 
It was Mrs. Daly Agra. Hmm. It was his wife. I told her the story and she just started bawling and remembering it. It was, it, it was that producer who gave me that time to have that shot. That was my first SDC contract as a choreographer. Wow. It's so interesting, the people that see our talents, that support us and give us that space to be who we end up being. And it sounds like that, that he was that producer that really gave you the space to, to explore what you really wanted to do, which was choreograph. Yeah, it was really, it was really something. Whenever I first asked you to come on, you know, I, I ask all my guests to give a bio and yours was very, again, very short and concise. And all it said was eight time Tony nominee, six time loser. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, because your podcast isn't about the success, your podcast is about the failures that lead to success, right? I know. And uh, I've, I found that very refreshing. But is that in some way how you see yourself? Do you remember those losses as much as the wins? Without question. Without question. And the other people that I look up to, Michael Bennett, who got nominated and nominated and nominated and never won, right? You know, awards are funny because, first of all, how do you compare apples to oranges? Our business is so unique. And each of us as artists and creators and choreographers and directors and designers and actors, the greatest gift you can bring to your art is yourself. That's what makes it unique. That's what makes it you. That's what it is, right? Once you discover who you are, if you can bring that to your work, that's your, that's your stamp. And, uh, I remember the first nomination for a Tony award because it caught me quite by surprise. I was working with Mark Shannon on a film that was a complete disaster called Marcy X. I don't, I think it went to video. It never even, never even, you know, saw the, saw a movie theater, but it was a big film. Uh, Paul Rudnick had written it and, uh, uh, Mark was writing the, doing the music and I was doing the choreography, Peggy and Jules were lighting the numbers. And we were up at Reverend Ike's, I believe shooting one of the big production numbers it, uh, with Lisa Kudrow, Jane Krakowski, uh, Sharon A. Scott. It was, it was fabulous. Yeah. All-star cast. And, um, they were announcing the Tony awards. I'll never forget it. Mark was listening to it on a webcast on New York one, because he's always <laughs> on the computer. And I didn't even know they were coming out that day. Really. I didn't. It, it, and then, yeah, I got nominated for Tony awards the first time. And of course, I went to the Tony Awards with my parents, took them as my guests and lost. And, you know, I had never thought about getting nominated for a Tony Award until the full Monty. And then, of course, every season I was thinking, well, I got nominated this yeah, season. Yeah, well, this right? be the one. Right. You know, now, so then it was, then it became a thing. Got nominated for Hairspray Lost, got nominated for uh, this one lost, that one lost, boom, boom. And it was finally the fourth time and I was nominated twice. I was nominated against myself in the same category. I was nominated for best choreography for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and best choreography for the revival of La Caja Full. And, and Casey was nominated for a spam a lot. And Wayne was nominated for Sweet Charity. And Jules Fisher said to me, he said, you're not going to win because you're nominated in a category with yourself. And when you're nominated against yourself, right. You split the vote, you, you split the vote and you don't win. That's what Jules said to me. And so I thought, okay, well, there goes that chance. So I really wasn't anticipating winning for La Caja Fall, although I thought the work was some of my most fun, pretty spectacular stuff that I created because Jerry Zach's just let me go. I, I think that time being nominated, I was even more nervous than any other time because of what he had said and because it was my fourth and fifth nomination, something like that. But yeah, you never know. Now, for us actors, obviously, we audition to get into shows. There's a certain process, audition callbacks, and you, and you book a show. For directors and choreographers, it's a little different with more of an interview or, or presenting a concept of what you want to do, Right. It can be all sorts of different things. Uh, like I said, I had to put together numbers for Jerry's acts 
But once you've done something and they can actually see your work, you're often called and just asked if you respond to the material, usually given the material to read and listen to the music and then either have a, if you're a choreographer, have a conversation with that director and see if you're on the same page about how it, that's certainly, that's what I do now is I look for associate. I give them the material and I, I see if they respond to it in the way I respond to it. There were a lot of shows that are hits on Broadway that I was asked to do and I did do them and I go, well, <laughs> you know, that's, that's fake. That's the way it worked out. Um, the process of developing a show, as you know, is you're getting married to a group of people and you're going to be with them for quite a long time. Yeah. So I always find that the people I want to work with are also people I want to be able to have dinner with because the work doesn't stop at six o'clock. It continues until the next day and you never stop thinking about it. And you just keep working until you get it right or get it done. I think one of the other stories you had asked me about was knowing your worth. Yeah. So that kind of goes into this for me was I was choreographing movies during the day. I was performing in the Will Rogers Follies at night. I was, I had a dog, I had a golden retriever that I had to walk. Um, and, you know, you know, you can say you're a success in a Broadway show because you're making money. But the truth of the matter is, even with the, with the cost of living in New York City and you're in an ensemble making a salary, it's very difficult to live and save a great deal of money when you're on a base minimum salary in a Broadway show. You have enough money to pay for your food and live okay as long as you're working and pay for your apartment. But there isn't a huge amount of savings at the end of the day. There's some, but not huge. So I was living well and doing my show and doing these side jobs as choreographers, which were usually smaller amounts of money and fees and sometimes small residual, but nothing massive. And so I got a call to work on this movie and I was asked to meet with the stars and start training them for the dance sequence. And the line producer who called me at my home, because I was choreographing the movie, but they wanted me to give some private dance sessions to the stars. And she said, we'll pay you two fifty dollars an hour. And I called her back and I said, no. I said, I don't have time to teach the stars to dance for two fifty dollars an hour. I said, you can find another person. I'm the choreographer. I'll choreograph them, but I don't have time to teach them. Because I was doing the show. I was doing lips together, teeth apart. I was walking my dog. I was out of time. And I was going to have to pay a dog walker to walk my dog to get that hour and a half so I could go teach these stars, right? And so she called me back like within an hour and she said, well, what do you want in order to teach them? And I said, well, if you can pay me $500 an hour, I'll find a way to make it work. And she called me back like 10 minutes later. She said, okay, we'll pay you $500. And I was like, so... First of all, that was the last time I ever negotiated for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Did you even I, expect her to come back and say yes? I didn't expect her to call me back. And I didn't expect her to ask me, what do you want? <laughs> right? right? I don't think anybody up to that point in my life asked me, what will we have to pay you to get you to say yes? Right? Mm-hmm. That was really what she was saying. And I was smart enough to know, okay, tell her the truth. Tell her what you need to make this work. And I am not one who shies away from work or time. I'm up every day at six o'clock. I have my schedule. I get my things done. I get my private time. I get my work done. I work out. I exercise before I start rehearsal at 10 o'clock. I'm usually at the rehearsal room at nine. I'm usually there an hour before rehearsal starts. So I'm pretty disciplined in how I get myself to the room and get the work done. But putting a value on your time and being able to express that taught me a great deal about worth, my self-worth and my time. And, and if I undersell myself, people will undersell me, right? Yeah. It kind of goes back to the story of that producer who let you go away. He saw worth in you and was able to then support that. And also, I want to say something, particularly for anyone who's super young listening to this, that wasn't something that I just came up with, you know, at 19. <laughs> I was 30 years old at this point, and I was doing three jobs right? And loving them all. But I had earned that worth. 
I had earned that worth. I had already been here for 10 years. I had five Broadway shows under my belt, national tours, equity contracts, SDC contracts. I had earned that worth. I had earned the right to say, no, I'm more valuable than that. I didn't just like say it at like fresh out of school, right? It wasn't like I didn't have the experience to back up that worth. Um, and, and I think that's important also to know I wasn't valuing myself just for the money. I was valuing myself for the experience I believed I was capable of bringing to the table, right? In some respect, as we mature, as we get more experience, yes, we're always valuable to a production, no matter where we are in our career. But as you say, at some point, we start to increase our value. We start to increase our worth based upon the experience that we do. And, you know, I always encourage people, particularly young people, to say yes to everything because you're going to learn from the experience and it's going to increase your worth. It's going to build your worth. Even if the experience isn't everything you thought it was going to be, it will only help guide you in the direction in which you want to go and you deserve to go. That individual direction that you are craving will come from the experience. I've had this a handful of times in my career, but it sounds like that you're someone that is asked to do a lot of things that if you had, you know, 70 hours in a day, you could do six shows at a time, you know? Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so whenever you have these offers of you could do this show or this show, or what about this other show? How do you decide, okay, I only have time enough to do one or two of these. How do you decide that? Love. I have to fall in love with the project. I have to be in love with the idea, the story. And also for me, as I've grown, I, I, I want to be in love with the people I'm working with. I find it a blessing to wake up every day. First, a blessing to wake up. But I find it, and I mean that, I find it a blessing to wake up. I find it another blessing to walk into the room and be surrounded by people I want to be with, right? That's really something. Yeah, I've certainly been in those shows where it's not always easy to work with certain people. Yeah. How, how do you navigate those difficult or tense relationships that can form in shows? I try to let the work lead the way. The work defines the room. And most of the shows that I tend to do have hope in them. They have hope. They have joy. At the end of the day, the story is about those things. So that's what permeates the room. I saw that in a huge way with Kinky Boots. I saw change people that were participating in the show, uh, particularly every actor who played the role of Lola went through a transformation playing that role. But I saw it transform people backstage. I saw it transform people, ushers. I saw it change the way they think about themselves and allowed them to become more authentically themselves. Yeah, there is that moment for both of the lead actors. There's that moment of realizing their own worth. Well, it was and... Harvey's, Harvey's intention always from watching the movie together, deciding to make the musical. Harvey said, I want this to be about accepting yourself. If you accept yourself, you can accept others. I want that to be the big thing for Charlie and Lola. Accept yourself and you'll accept others too. And that message was a big part of the show. Yeah, you had mentioned that when you were back in Michigan, that one of the reasons, or it sounded like one of the reasons that you didn't go into dance initially was you were gay and didn't want to be perceived as that, didn't, didn't want to be found out. Was that something that took you a while to also accept? Oh yeah, oh, of course it did. I was born in 1960, right? So I just had my 62nd birthday. So all through school, all through my high school, my grade school years, I can honestly say to you, I did not know one other gay person. I didn't know, I had no gay role models. I never met another gay person until I was 16, well, 16 or 17, I was a, a junior or senior. That was the first time I met another gay person. And then, of course, I went to Webster College and met several gay people, but I still didn't have the courage to come out to my parents or to talk about myself being gay till I 
was 28, 29, 30 was when I really had that experience with my family. And of course, they all accepted me and knew and it was no big deal. But it was such a different time. We didn't have Will and Grace on television. We didn't have that. It just wasn't a part of our our world back then. Was that mostly out of fear or did you see yourself as less than because you were gay? Oh, I, I think I was an overachiever because I was gay. Um, if I saw myself less than, I put up a great front to be more than. You know, I was class president. I got a varsity letter as a freshman in track, football, and basketball. Wow. Plus I was in the choir. Plus I was in student council. Plus I was an A student. Plus I was in the theater. I mean, I was a busy boy. <laughs> right. And, and that, yeah, that has obviously been something that has continued on. You like to fill every minute of every hour. Overachiever. Overachiever. <laughs> Is it difficult for you to take a rest, to take a vacation? No, not now. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to get those breaks at this point, right? Yeah. They're actually a part of my growth. They're, they should be a part of everyone's growth. Those breaks are part our chance to reach, refuel, recharge, stop, listen, learn, get prepared for the next one. And speaking of getting ready for the next one, you obviously were preparing yourself for that chance to be a choreographer. But when the chance came to then also direct, was that something that seemed like an easy transition or was there a bit of trepidation going into that? It was the easiest transition ever. It was Legally Blonde and it was Kristen Kasky, Mike Isaacson, Dory Berenstein and Hal Luftig, producers that I've worked with on several projects now. Uh, Mike and Kristen gave me my choreographic debut in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. They were the producers. And now they were giving me, along with Hal and Dory, my directorial debut with Legally Blonde. And it literally was effortless to, to get the job. I was walking in Times Square. Hal came out of the subway. He saw me. We didn't know each other from Adam. He said, oh my God, I can't believe it. Jerry, I'm Hal Luptig. I'm working on a project. We'd like to talk to you about it. I went and met the four producers in the office. I got there. They slapped down the DVD of Legally Blonde on the table. And they said, we want to turn this into a musical. And we'd love you to direct it. And I said, well, this is perfect. I said, I loved the movie. The movie is a musical. The, she is a larger than life character. And I just went through a breakup where I was Elle Woods following my Warner Huntington, the hmm. third. <laughs> and I said, so I can relate to everything about this. And that was the process. And they actually hired me before they hired anyone. And then we chose the writing team of Larry and Nell and Heather, and we got to work and started collaborating on the musical. Yeah, this history. When it comes to directing versus choreographing, obviously you've been both individually, but then doing it together, what do you see as that marriage of the two? You know, for me, when I was very, very young, of course I was focusing on when I, just choreographing, I was focusing on the choreographer, right? But prior to getting my first job as the choreographer, I had assisted Michael Bennett for two years on his last musical scandal. And then I assisted Jerry Robbins for two years on Jerome Robbins Broadway. I was learning from real people in the business who had climbed massive heights. And the third is Jack O'Brien. And we were set up on a lunch by Manny Eisenberg, who was producing Jerome Robbins Broadway. And he knew Jack and he knew me. And he said, you guys are going to work together one day. I know it. You're perfect for each other. And he just set us up on a lunch together. 10 years later, I'm working with Jack O'Brien on the full Monty. That was first. Then we did Hairspray. Then we did Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Then we did uh, Nora Ephron's play Imaginary Friends. Then we did Catch Me If You Can. But, you know, we just kept working together. We had a decade of working together. So I'm learning from Jack firsthand to be a director because if I wanted to get up and direct a scene, Jack would let me do it. If Jack wanted to get up and do a dance, I would let him do it. So we were kind of just feeding off of each other. We just loved working together and we were just in the room. We lived together in his house in um, 
San Diego when we did the full Monty. We would come home, we would eat. I'm surprised we're not married because <laughs> we literally, we were in creative love. I mean, we were just having the time of our life and we still do. But that decade, that 10 years of working with Jack allowed me to test my direction as a choreographer. He would allow me to direct the actors in the scenes that fell inside of the musical numbers. And then he would be there too to direct them, but he would allow me to keep going. He didn't st- stop. I'll direct that. You know, right. it just My wasn't, there, were, yeah. there, were, there was no line. And, and like I said, if he got up and did a dance, and he would often do it. He would get up and do the routine or do a step. And I go, oh, I love that. Let's put that in the routine. You know, so it was that kind of creativity, that freedom in the room with him that made it easy for me when I made that transition as a director of choreographer on Legally Blonde. And the thing that was the hardest for me on Legally Blonde was being alone. Was being alone. I was the director and choreographer and I didn't have Jack and I didn't have Jerry and I didn't have Michael. I had to do it all. I had to come up with it all. That was an adjustment to learn as the director choreographer. And then I had to gather my support system. I had to gather my Mark Bruni, my Rusty Mowry, my D.B. Bonds, the people who were now the voices I could bounce ideas off of and trust and take their ideas when they brought them to me. And there were lots of people in that room supporting me on that first jump. Now... Years later, for On Your Feet, you then were just the director. No choreography, Sergio Trujillo, that was his job. Was that a very similar relationship? Well, Sergio and I go back even further. I hired Sergio when I was working for Jerome Robin. I went to California to find dancers for Jerome Robin's Broadway. He sent Cynthia and Ruby and I to California because he wasn't going to fly. So we went out to LA, we had this massive audition and we came back with two people, Sergio Trujillo and Nancy Kickerton. And they both got the show and Sergio became a great friend. And then I did a show, an original musical called Heart's Desire at the Cleveland Playhouse. And I hired Sergio Trujillo and Jack Noseworthy to be in the dancing ensemble. And Sergio was assisting me on stuff. And Jack and Sergio became partners on that show. And they've been a part of my life for forever. Now, Sergio, we'd worked together a lot of stuff. He danced for me and literally was all the 10 dancing doubles for the Drew Carey show. He was with me on that. He was on lots of stuff with me. And so Nick Scandalis comes to me and says, I've got this project. It's, it's the Estepans. It's, it's, I, here's the script. Here's what I want to do. He said, but I want Sergio to choreograph. And I said, Oh my God, that's a, yes. I said, first of all, he's my family. Second of all, he's authentic. And I said, I'm not going to try and pretend like I'm the authentic salsa dancer in the room. This is great. And so we collaborated together on, on your feet. His work is so brilliant and he had not had a Tony nomination until on your feet. Yeah, he and I worked together doing The Addams Family. Yeah, that was uh, some of the most difficult choreography I've ever had to do. I'm <laughs> I'm not a dancer by trade. I'm the actor-singer who wants to move well. But yeah, that was some difficult choreography. But, you know, I eventually got it with enough work and kept getting it. And that actually brings up another question. For us non-dancers, choreographers like yourself can be intimidating. Of course, Do you sense that? How do you handle the non-dancers when it comes to choreography and working with them? Well, I've gotten better at it. And actually, I I think what I've really learned, well, this was Jerry Robbins. Jerry Robbins always said, I'll take an actor over a dancer in a piece all the time. There was a ballet in Jerome Robbins Broadway. It was the Charleston. And there was a character called uh, the screen girl, I think, or whatever. And uh, Suzanne Fletcher played that part. And she also played Golda, right? So Suzanne Fletcher really was an actress who danced. And she was hilarious and fabulous in that part. But Jerry knew that she could bring the acting to the dance. 
as opposed to just the dance, right? And that was a lesson I learned early on from him that I think I carried out in my own dancing stuff. Like in, in the full Monty, Michael Jordan's fall, which ends the first act, I couldn't have choreographed that number had I not worked with Jerry Robbins and learned that acting can tell the story in the dance because they're all imagining they're playing with a basketball. There's no basketball. So I needed actors who could pretend like they were dribbling and turning it into dance steps. And I, they were all actors, those boys. They weren't dancers. And it was a spectacular number. And I made each actor strip for me in their final callback for the full Monty, all by themselves. I made them play a song. And I said, show me your strip. and just made them do their own thing because I was looking for character. I wasn't looking for choreography. So they each had to like do their own little strip routine for Jack oh and goodness. I. Not get totally naked, <laughs> but you know, take it off. Show yeah. me how you would do it. And that became vocabulary for their characters as we built the routine. Using the acting gifts of an actor in a room, I find is always, as a choreographer, is helpful to creating something truly authentic. As you've heard, Jerry Mitchell got his start in musical theater, but he's also branched out into other arenas as well. And in this week's audition story, Jerry shares the time he tried out for the Academy Awards. But it wasn't his dancing abilities that ended up making the difference. Now, bonus episodes like these are only available to monthly supporters of Why I'll Never Make It. So if you'd like to help this podcast out and get access to those bonus episodes like audition stories, then consider a monthly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or just look for the direct link in the show notes. Well, that gets us into our last story, which you titled as, If You Don't Love It, how can you expect anyone else to? Well, if I'm not having a ball, if I'm not turned on by it, how can I expect any other audience member to get turned on by it? So I'll give you an example. The end of the first act in Katie Boots, I had been reading the script and working with Harvey and Sin and doing readings. And Harvey kept writing, conveyor belts, conveyor belts, deliver the shoes, conveyor belts, deliver the shoes, conveyor belts, deliver the shoes. And I actually went to Northampton and toured the shoe factories, particularly the Trickers factory where the movie was made. There are no conveyor belts delivering shoes. That's not the way that it works. They get put on these trolleys and get pushed around. But the conveyor belt idea and image in a musical was such a clear idea. And they did have a conveyor belt in the film. And so I thought, what if, and then I, what if I could dance on the conveyor belt? What if I could actually get up on it and dance on it in the boots? And so then I remember this was, YouTube was just really blossoming. And there was a group called OK Go, and they did a routine on four treadmills i remember it that went viral and i just loved oh, that, it. that music video yeah and mm -hmm. so i took the video to david rockwell and i said i want to build four conveyor belts that are desk height off the floor that will hold the weight of a 200 pound guy dancing jumping running i said you know sometimes you're on a treadmill and if you it glitches i said there can be no glitching so they built me a test treadmill four feet up that I wanted and it had a dialed speed on it and they sent it to the rehearsal room. I got on it and I fell off of it multiple times and I hurt myself. Not bad, but I thought equity will never allow me to put actors on this. They'll say no. So I called David. I said, we're going to have to put guardrails on this. And he said, well, where do you want them? I said, I don't know. I said, make me eight holes and make me a guardrail that I can put anywhere I want it. So he made eight holes and we put a guardrail and we still had the turn dial. I said, while you're at it, can you add about a six foot platform to one side of the treadmill and keep it two inches or three inches on the other side? So if I want to step off and let somebody go past me, I can do that. Sure. So they went, got it fixed, 
sent it back a couple of weeks later. I'm in the rehearsal room. I got the dial and I've got Stephen Arenas, the musical director, brilliant Stephen Arenas. I said, we need to set tempos for this song now that's going to play for, for as long as the show runs because I've got to set this treadmill on one speed for the dance and it can never waver so I can walk in rhythm to the song. Everybody say, yeah, how fast does this speed need to be? So we set a treadmill speed for the dance routine and we set a treadmill speed for the delivery of the shoes. We had only two speeds on the treadmill, button first shoes, dance, and that was it. Sit that back. Now it was there. Okay, so we get on it and I have one treadmill and six dancers. Now I like the treadmill. I said, okay, now I need four treadmills. Send the treadmill back. They make four of them. They send it back to the room. Now I've got four treadmills, six dancers, Stephen Arimus, drummers. I'm creating a number and I'm loving it. We're having a ball. And the number is, I think, good. But I'm not sure is it, is it too long? Has it outworn its welcome? And so I decide to cut it almost in half. I take a huge chunk of it out hmm. and I look at it without that chunk and I go, better, better. I said, we're really not doing anything that difficult, but it looks difficult, but people aren't going to have time to figure out because every time we settled in a picture, I changed it. And then boom, I changed it and boom. And so I'm feeling really good about the number, but I haven't done it in front of anybody or people, right? And my dear friend, who was one of the angels, whose opinion I trust, because he was in Lacage for me and, and many things for me, Paul Kanan has a dentist appointment and we're in rehearsal and we're working on the treadmill moment. And so Paul goes to the dentist and the swing jumps in and we're finishing the number and I'm running it. And just as I start the number, Paul walks in and he watches the number for the very first time. He hadn't seen the number because he was in it. And he watched the number and he goes, oh my God, this is brilliant. This is going to stop the show. This is incredible, Jerry. And I felt like it was, I was very proud of it. And I thought it was really good, but it was that I remember he was the first person who said that to me. And I thought, leave well enough alone. Let's wait until we're in front of an audience. And then once we were in front of an audience, I never changed the number. That rarely happens with me. I often am tinkering and readjusting. That number did not change from the, from the day we left that rehearsal room. And the only thing that almost changed was the producers had those cards that people fill out at the end of a show in Chicago. And they had all written, we want more dancing. We want more treadmill number. Every card, huh. every card. They showed me the cards and I was like, nope, nope, I'm not doing more. <laughs> and they said, why won't you do more? And I said, because if I do more, they're going to figure it out and they're not going to write, I want more. They're going to write. That number went on too long. Too long, yeah. And I learned, don't give the magic away. Do it and boom, get out. <laughs> now, in thinking back to the shows that you've choreographed, either on Broadway or off, are, are there ones that you would like to go back again and do differently? As you say, you like to tweak things. Would you want to go back to a show and try it again? I don't necessarily want to go back to any shows. <laughs> I sure. mean, I feel like once you've done the show, it never leaves you. So it's always a part of me, right? Whether I'm doing it or my associates doing it or someone else completely doing it. That show is being done because we created it and made it successful enough to want to be done again and again, again. Uh, it's a, in, in a course, you, you'd ask me about the directing thing for me and the choreography thing. For me, it's always about the story, right? How do you tell the story? So choosing how to tell the story is what's most important. However, that manifests itself in a musical song, scene, or dance. Look, I'm doing hairspray now again. I just did hairspray. I'm doing kinky boots at the Hollywood Bowl. We're doing kinky boots in Korea. We're doing kinky boots in Japan. Who knows? We may be doing Kinky Boots in New York again. Who knows? I don't know. And Legally Blonde is going to be done this summer at the Muni. It's going to be done this summer at Regent's Park. And 
in uh, London. And I'm looking forward to all of that, to see it. You know, they, they never really leave you. Once you've done them, they never really leave you. Yeah. And now, now your most recent show, Pretty Woman, um, I, I think it's fair to say it didn't get rave reviews on Broadway. No, it did not. But it did get better reviews on the tour. Were you able to tinker around with it to make that tour a better production that you could be proud of? Yes. Pretty Woman came into New York at the worst possible time for that musical to come into anywhere, to come into the world, because the Me Too movement had begun and that musical had a target on its back walking into the city. And there were people who were unwilling to see it for what it was. Time passed. We went to London. So I made some tinkering. Uh, the show in London got rave reviews across the board. It has been selling out for the entire run. And it's a huge hit. And we just launched the, uh, the tour in America last September when theater opened back up and getting rave reviews in most towns on the road. So Pretty Woman has given the audience what they want, a wonderful night out at the theater. Right. Because I remember when I was a part of the Adams Family, there was the Broadway version, but then once it came to the tour, they, I mean, they took about 40% of the show out, replaced songs, replaced scenes, really yeah. kind of restructured the show for the tour. And now that's the version that goes to schools and, and other community theaters. How do you know what to change, what to tinker when you're revisiting a show again? Well, first of all, let me tell you, I went to see that tour because Sergio is my dear friend. Because right, Sergio. And, yeah. I, and I had seen it on Broadway and I knew they were changing it. So I stopped in Chicago to see it specifically because I wanted to see how it changed. And Andrew Lippa, my God, you know, uh, Andrew Lippa's one of my besties. And we did Peep Show together in Vegas. But more importantly, Andrew created the first themed production number for Broadway Bears, my annual fundraiser for the seventh year, and then wrote the opening number for many, many productions of Broadway Bears past that. So again, it's always about telling a story, right? I think it was George Abbott who said, if we didn't fall in love with our own material, we would be better show doctors to our own show. <laughs> yes, yeah, you kind of lose that objectivity. I've always, I've always, you know, I want to fall in love with a project that I'm doing, but I never want to lose the ability to see the story that's being told and then be able to solve the problem if something isn't working. And I'll give you a perfect example, and I'm going to give it to you on something very successful. Kinky Boots. We're in Chicago. The show is running. We're in previews. And it is getting really, really wonderful responses. And it ever, and we're building and building. It's getting better and better and better. We are doing the boxing number where Don beats Lola. And Stephen Arenas had done the most amazing arrangement for the ensemble. And they're singing their asses off. And it's going, Don's the champion. Don's the champion. Don's the champion. Oh, and you hear the audience go. <laughs> I'm pulling my hair out. I'm going, why are they not going crazy? I just did this fabulous slow motion boxing match that Harvey said was my best work. I'm, I'm loving the number. I'm loving the story that's being told. I'm following it. Danny Sherman is incredible. Billy Porter's incredible. Everybody in the show's incredible. Joey Taranto, the referee, is incredible. What is the problem with these people? And then I think to myself, well, they don't like Don. They don't want him to win. They're never going to cheer Don. They don't like the character. They don't like him. They like Lola. They want Lola to win. And when Lola turns to the match, they're like, why did you do that? You know, so I said, we're not going to end the number, Steven. We're just going to let it fade out. and We're going to go into the scene. Cut the ending, cut it all. I love it, but we can't do it. We just got to fade it out and go into the scene. They don't want to applaud, so let's not ask them to. Let's just move on with the story. So we just faded it right out into the little scene at the bar, which is a beautiful, beautiful scene. And it's so moving, right? Mm -hmm. So I figured it out by listening to the audience and not loving that arrangement that Arena's made, which was incredible so much 
that they didn't have the balls to cut it. That's sometimes you have to kill your babies. Mike Nichols, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) We talked earlier about having support and about those people that recognize us, they give us that push. Certainly one of the biggest things in our personal life are friends and family, our relationships that we have. And for you, you've been together with Ricky Schroeder now for about 10 years. And I assume that that has been a huge support for you, uh, both personally, but also professionally. Without question support when you succeed, but more importantly, support when you fail. Having the ability to be honest with each other, no matter it's a partner, a friend, a lover, or just a co-worker that's working with you on a production. I remember we had created the What a Woman Wants, the opening of the second act that I'm going to call it the tango. It's Lola in the boots and Don having their argument at the top of the second act, What a Woman Wants. And originally there was about a three minute dance in there with all of the angels doing a tango with the factory worker. And there were scarves and the angels were all in red pants and red vests and looking very chic. And we worked for six weeks on this production number and it was all up on its feet. And I was watching it and I was watching it. And I turned to Harvey and I said, Harvey, this is not doing it for me. Something's wrong. I don't like it. I don't know why the angels are in the factory right now, other than to do this production number. And I don't think we've given them a reason to be here. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I want to cut it all and take it all out and just let it be Lola, Don and the factory workers. And he said, well, then try it. He said, do it, do what you want to do. Try it, give it a try. And so I cut everybody out. I cut the angels out and the costumes for all of them made beautiful Greg Barnes designs. I cut them all. And I didn't like in an hour. I said, we're just taking everybody out. I'm cutting the dance break. I'm going to let Lola speak down that we're going to do this. We're going to do this. I restaged it. We did it. And I went, yes, this is what it's supposed to be. Harvey came back in. He said, oh, it's fabulous. It's great. It's wonderful. But I was able to be honest that I didn't think we had written the angels into the scene and it felt false that they were there. Antidote to that story. We're getting ready to leave for Chicago for our first uh, tryout of the show. And Greg says to me, Greg Barnes, what do you want me to do with all those angel costumes we cut? Should I bring them to Chicago? And I said, oh yeah, bring them to Chicago because we don't know what's going to happen when we get to Chicago. So he packs up all of this red black stuff and we're in Chicago and we're in the land of Lola. The, the first time I see the costumes on stage, the original designs, Lola was in a, a gold rhinestone dress that looked like the sun. It was kind of like an old Anne Margaret slip thing and a, or, 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 you know, Bob Mackey thing for share. And all of the angels were dressed as a flower. Hmm. We had an iris, we had a orchid, we had tulips, you know, they were each a flower and Lola was the sun and that was the land of Lola. And they came on stage and I saw each costume and I was like, oh God, what did I do, Greg? I said, we have to cut all these. This is going to work. And Greg just looked at me and said, I know. And I said, what are we going to do? And he said, well, I've got those tango costumes in the basement. I said, red and black. I said, yes. And so he took those costumes regurgitated them onto the girls, ran over to the American Apparel and bought some shorts and culottes and little frou-frou skirts and sort of bedazzled things and put them up. They went into the show that night and forevermore, the land of Lola became red and black. How about that? Yeah, so, you know, you don't throw anything away. Take your trunk to Chicago. That's great. That's great. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to share these stories. It's been so wonderful to uh, reminisce, but also to learn from your example. So I greatly appreciate you sharing all these stories with us. It has been my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining Jerry and me today. But remember, the conversation continues not only with that audition story bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find a link to that in the show notes or by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. This week's listener feedback comes from Fred 
who reached out to me on Instagram and said, thanks so much. I've been a host for a decade and studying acting this year. Your podcast has been such an awesome resource. I had trouble memorizing my lines the other day and found your show on Google Podcasts and have been listening to as many episodes as I can since. Well, Fred, I am really happy to hear that. I'm glad you found Joyce's episode so helpful to you. It really means a lot to me that WinMe has been this resource for you as you become a better actor. Now, if you too would like to follow this podcast on Twitter or Instagram, just like Fred, then look for the username WinMePodcast on either platform. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production and is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It.